was born Jan Ludwig Hyman Benjamin Hock to an Orthodox Jewish family in Czechoslovakia in 1923. His parents were farm laborers and he grew up in poverty with nine siblings. His overriding memories of childhood were hunger pains and how much he loved his mother. When the Nazi war machine swept through his part of Europe, he escaped and fled to France. He helped organize an underground escape route for other Czechs and he fought for the army in exile. He adopted a new name that he took from a cigarette brand, Yvon de Maurier. He learned English in six weeks and he joined the British army in time to fight at Normandy. He led raids into Nazi-occupied territory. Once, he threatened to level an entire German village if the Nazi troops there didn't surrender and he killed the mayor they sent to negotiate as a demonstration of his resolve. His commanding officer filed a glowing report about him that read, His sense of duty is outstanding and his desire to kill Huns is a driving force. Field Marshal Montgomery would pin a military cross to his uniform in 1945. By the time the Reich was collapsing, almost all his family had died in the Holocaust. He never really had friends. He collected acquaintances and people who might prove useful to him. They describe a man who was never entirely sure of who he was, who adopted a multitude of different personalities, who constructed walls between different parts of his life. He told contradictory stories about his past. He did not regret the killings that he committed during the war. He did not regret looting corpses or running black market swag. He was multilingual and the British army recognized him as a quick thinker and a canny operator and he was attached to the Foreign Office press section in 1945 and deployed to Berlin. The Foreign Office immediately concluded that he was some kind of double agent, but for whom they weren't exactly sure, although they suspected the Soviets. It didn't ultimately matter because he was also an asset for British intelligence, and eventually he would be an asset for the CIA and for Mossad. He made his money in academic publishing, uh, using his contacts in the Allied occupation authorities to work an angle where he'd buy scientific journals and papers for next to nothing, most of them sourced from the Soviet Union, and he'd sell them at a high markup in the West. He used the profits from this to buy three quarters of a publishing house called Butterworth Springer, which he renamed Pergamon Press. He told people he spent time in a military hospital with Ronald Reagan during the war or that he'd been born in Scotland, or that he sold the contents of the House of Commons wine cellar for £25,000. One of these stories is actually true. When he proposed to his wife Elizabeth, who he met in France in 1944, he told her, I shall win a military cross, I will make my fortune, I will recreate my family, and I will become Prime Minister of Britain. He viewed women as naturally subordinate to men, and he made a point of mistreating Elizabeth, who tried to understand his mercurial temperament and violent outbursts by educating herself about the Holocaust. She discovered the Nazis had actually killed almost 300 members of his extended family. They had nine children. One died of leukemia and another never regained consciousness after a car crash. Elizabeth said that much of his life was spent trying to recreate the family he'd had in Czechoslovakia 
and trying to recreate himself as something other than what he was. It was impossible to know for sure because he rarely expressed how he felt about concepts like family or love or friendship and so much of what he said contradicted so many other things that he'd said. When he visited the tiny village where he'd been born, the locals gave him a hero's welcome. During a visit to Auschwitz, he was overcome by the horror of the Nazi death machine and he was inconsolable for days afterwards. He made his money in publishing, but the books in his various homes were all empty cardboard sleeves. He regarded almost everybody that he encountered with a deep, acidic contempt. By the 1980s, his business empire would extend from Britain to Europe, America, Asia, and Africa. He was awarded the Order of the White Rose of Finland. When he was at the office, he would take a shit with the bathroom door open so that his secretaries would be subjected to a sensory overload of sound and smell. To impress journalists, he would instruct underlings to burst into the room mid-interview saying the President of the United States was on the phone, urgently seeking his advice. Sometimes they were telling the truth. He claimed socialist politics, but he would piss off the roof of his newspaper's headquarters onto the people in the street below. He loved to fight with trade union leaders and he would eventually steal upwards of 491 million pounds from his staff's pension funds. He collected friends in politics, particularly the Labour Party. Neil Kinnock, the Labour Party leader, hated and feared him. The emerging generation of politicians, the ones who'd go on to plan the new Labour project, admired his ability to pay lip service to leftist principles while behaving in exactly the opposite way. He was a formative influence on future Blairite all-stars like Peter Mandelson, Gordon Brown, and Alistair Campbell. A future Labour MP called Helen Liddell worked as public affairs director at two papers that he owned, The Daily Record and The Sunday Mail. He described her as his eyes and ears in Scotland. He was a tyrant and a bully who humiliated his employees and delighted in terrorising and publicly humiliating his sons, Ian and Kevin. The British establishment considered him a loudmouth clown and a peasant. Press criticism of him was shot through with xenophobia and anti-Semitism. He detested the English aristocracy, their parochial dullness, their incestuous social circles, their dull-witted children, and he craved their acceptance all the same. He became a Labour MP in 1964, and the Queen of England named her noisiest and most aggressive Corgi Maxwell after him. He truly loved only one of his children, his youngest daughter. He named his yacht the Lady Galen in her honour. He had a stained glass window depicting himself as Samson installed at his mansion in Oxford, uh, Headington Hill Hall. His daughter inherited his strange sense of humour. After his death, she was frequently snapped by paparazzi on a yacht called the Octopus. She hung devil masks in her house and toy skeletons in her closets. He expanded his portfolio to include Macmillan Publishing, the British Printing Corporation and the Mirror News Group. By the 1980s, he earned half of MTV in Europe and he was in the third decade of a war with Rupert Murdoch, whom he hated with an awesome white hot intensity. He was fascinated by technology and the revolutionary capabilities of computers. He'd invested in advanced instrumentation modules based at St. Ives in Cambridge, but he refused to invest any more in the venture unless he was given total control of AIM. 
15 years later, when Sinclair Research was on the verge of bankruptcy, he made a bid to save it. One of his big ideas was to offload Sinclair's stockpile of unsold QL computers to the Soviets. The computer software division of his mirror group, uh, Mirrorsoft, would eventually become entangled in a ferocious tug of war over the distribution rights to Tetris. Tetris wouldn't be the only app that he tried to profit from in the 1980s. For all his sense of alienation inside a ruling class he spent the first half of his life breaking into, he maintained a Rolodex of powerful contacts who were always eager to do him a favour, at least until his final years. He hosted lavish parties at Headington, attended by sheiks and dukes and MPs and royalty and celebrities and whoever else might prove useful. Margaret Thatcher considered him an impressive if obnoxious figure. Ronald Reagan sent him telegrams on his birthday. He was pictured at Malcolm Forbes 70th birthday party in Morocco with Elizabeth Taylor. He is pictured shaking Queen Elizabeth's hand in 1983 while Ghislaine stood close by. The broadcaster David Frost gave him a £500 bottle of wine to celebrate Pergamon's 40th anniversary. The Headington Hall chef used it to make a beef stew. His banker was Sir Michael Richardson, who was the managing director of Rothschild's bank and Thatcher's economic advisor. After his death, the Lady Galen would be sold on and rechristened the Dancing Hare. In one of those strange twists that seemed to haunt this entire series, the Dancing Hare wound up being owned by Anna Murdoch, uh, Rupert's ex-wife. Disquieting rumours about his connections to the intelligence underworld surfaced every so often and he tried his best to clamp down on them with threats of legal action. He was said to have worked with Mossad to plan the kidnapping of an Israeli nuclear scientist and whistleblower in 1986. He bought the Lady Galen from Ahmad Khashoggi, who was the nephew of deep state operative Adnan. He told his Mossad handlers they should start using psychics to find potential terrorists. He kept the British government informed of events inside the Soviet Union during the coup attempt of 1991. He was given something very close to a state funeral in Israel in November of the same year. Six heads of Mossad were in attendance. The Israeli Prime Minister gave a flowery eulogy in which he said, he has done more for Israel than today can be told. People who knew him say that for all his larger-than-life presence, rooms somehow seemed emptier when he entered them. The air seemed colder. Conversations grew strained. He was the great blank spot at the centre of every social function. A loud, aggressive, overbearing nothing. Harold Wilson, the ex-Labour Prime Minister, once tried to make a speech in his honour at Headington Hall, but his Alzheimer's caused him to forget who he was talking about, which the guests say infuriated the host. There was a sense from the people who thought they knew him that nothing he achieved meant much to him, and that the obsessive collecting of Rolls Royces and penthouses and mansions and mistresses was really all just a way of reassuring himself that he existed. They say he was driven by greed and resentment, and an all-consuming fear that he wasn't quite real. They recall how he would walk around parties with his own portable PA system so everybody could hear him speak. He took his final name from a brand of instant coffee. Disintegration defines his story, from the day the Nazis annihilated his family, to the collapse of his business empire, to what became of his children, to the night he vanished from the Lady Galen, 
and was fished out of the ocean shortly afterwards. He was Robert Maxwell, but somehow Robert Maxwell never really existed. To unlock this episode in full, please head over to the show Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash ghost stories for the end, and explore the seafloor with us. Good, 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 good